Episode 238 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the internationally renowned English astronomer, writer and television presenter Patrick Moore, who was credited with popularising astronomy and science. Patrick famously hosted the BBC TV series The Sky at Night from 1957 until his death in 2012, making it the world's longest-running TV series with the original presenter. He was knighted in 2001. A popular eccentric who also composed and played music, Patrick lived in Selsey, West Sussex, where this interview took place in 1993. Sky at Night, which is, what, 36 years old this year? 36 years old now, yes. What's the secret of the longevity of the programme, do you think? Simply the interest of the subject. Um, I began doing it in April 1957, and, of course, then astronomy is rather a way-out subject. In October, up went Sputnik 1, and suddenly astronomy became very much of a topic. And I was doing it then. And if anybody else had been doing the sky at night then, they'd be sitting here now, not me. Did you ever imagine that it would last as long? I didn't know. I mean, I, did, I knew nothing about television then. I don't know much now, but I knew nothing then at all. I simply had no idea at all. The BBC said they would put it on the air once every four weeks for three months and see how it goes. Look at that was 36 years ago. <laughs> do you remember any particular programmes over the years? Oh, quite a number I do. One I remember, for example, the, um, the 50th Sky at Night. It wasn't meant to be a comedy show, but it turned out that way. We were doing the first attempt at showing things from the sky with a big telescope. and uh, It was live then, of course, and every time we tried, the clouds came over. We got absolutely nothing at all. Five minutes before and five minutes after the programme was dead clear. The one, uh, I remember also the time when I swallowed a large fly on television. It was a classic. Um, the time also when we had the Russian astronomer who just spoke no English. We didn't know that when we started the programme. And I did it by hope by saying what I, what I hoped to God he was saying in English, which he was, apparently. Were the and then, of course, the, uh, the first men on the moon, obviously. Mm. And, the various, and the various space probes. What about the time when you banged your head on your bath just before the programme? It was just after, thank God. Um, I had done a programme, and I came back, and I did what, what everyone could do except oneself. Literally, it slipped in the bathroom, caught my head on the bath, and I remember nothing whatever for the next fortnight, really. I was darn likely to get away with it. And there was a, a month after that, two weeks again, I had two weeks, and they carried me down, put me in the chair, you'll sit that chair there. I did the programme from here, and no one knew, but I couldn't stand, I couldn't use my hands. Oh, you've been quite accident-prone over the years, haven't you? Not really. I think I've, I'm 70, I think. I've, I've had a long time. No, I don't think I have. That was, that was a bad accident I had, obviously. And um, the cricket ball last scene was an awful nuisance. But otherwise, not counting the war, obviously, I've been all right. Mm. Tell us, whereabouts did you come from? Where did you grow up? Where, what were your family from? I was actually born in what was then a little country village called Pinner, now, of course, part of outer London, but it wasn't then. It was streamlined through the garden, I believe. And lived there for six months. And then my parents had been in East Africa, and uh, they hadn't got, but they, they, we went to Pinner. And then, intending to go temporarily, we went to my grandmother's holiday house, which is in Aldwick, just outside Bognor. Intending to stay six months. We actually stayed six years. And then after that, went to East Grinstead in Sussex and stayed there for 36 years, not counting the war when I was flying all over the place. And then I did the only job I've ever held or ever wanted to hold. I was director of the Armagh Planetarium. I set the planetarium up there for three years and then came out to Chelsea. Now, that all stemmed from when you were six years old, you developed a passion for astronomy, is that right? I picked up a small blue book that I can show you, it's over there, and um, I sat in the armchair and I read it from cover to cover, and um, I was hooked. Why do you think you were hooked? What was it about? I have no idea. I mean, why, does any, why is anyone interested in anything? I don't know. You know it just caught my fancy, and I looked around for another one, found it, and I decided to go on from there, which I did. Was there any family connection in astronomy at all? Uh, only very vaguely. My mother was always interested enough to have one or two small books on it. And I, those were her books that I read, that I still got. But, I mean, only, only very vaguely. 
So what did your father do? He was an army officer, but uh, he went through the First World War collecting things like MCs, but also collected a lung full of gas, which didn't help at all, and he was never, never fit afterwards. He was also an accountant, that's why he was out in East Africa. Did he die quite a long time ago? Or? 1947. Right. Yeah. Were you an only child, or did you have brothers and sisters? An only child, yes. Mm. Anyway. Do you think that helped your sort of developing passions in things like astronomy? Well, difficult to say, I didn't have an ordinary childhood, through no one's fault at all, but from the age of six to rising 16, I was in and out of bed the whole time. Orphan news and said, um, it wrecked everything. I mean, I managed one term at prep school without being ill, which is mm. fine. Next time I have one day. Mm. Worked up, took common entry read and passed it. And back in bed again, never went. Mm. It was the and things. So I had to take my school certificate as an external candidate, which I did. So um, uh, that was when I was 16. Then, of course, the war broke out. And there was no way in which I could pass the medical for the forces. So I had to fake that one and my age. And uh, <laughs> that rather finished everything. <laughs> I wondered if you were in bed all day because you spent all night looking at your I wasn't in bed all day. I was in, in and out. I couldn't do any exercise or anything like that. I couldn't play any games or anything like that at all. So I mean, that's why I was playing at the age of 70. I still play tennis and cricket. Mm. So I felt like I'd meet the age of 17. I found it the other day. <laughs> One with the wing. So how did your enthusiasm for astronomy develop from just reading a book? Where did it go from there? I do what I think is the right thing to do. Um, I got a star map and worked my way around the sky. I borrowed a pair of binoculars, saved that and bought a telescope, which cost £7.10, shillings, which is a jolly good telescope, and I was using it last night. Of course, now it costs a great deal more than that now. And um, I was very lucky, an old friend of the family was a member of the British Astronomical Association, and at the age of 11, he put me up as a member. So I became the youngest ever member of the BAA, 50 years later, I was president. <laughs> and um, I got into that. What did your parents think of your enthusiasm? Did they think you were a bit potty? No, they were all for it. They were definitely all for it. They encouraged me all the way through. I'd have thought it would be quite a healthy pursuit, unlike sort of perhaps watching the television these days. Well, there wasn't any television then, don't forget. But going back to the 1920s and 1930s, yeah. was it, I remember having our first wireless. It was a long time back. <laughs> was it quite a common hobby amongst no, children? it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, very far, there are very few youngsters then who are interested in it, I think. Many more now. I know when I used to go to the BAE meetings when I could, um, there weren't very many youngsters there. Were there any great discoveries you made as a young astronomer? The only thing I've ever discovered are things on the moon. Uh, cause the, the, uh, the moon is my subject, and if I'm uh, wearing my astronomer's hat, uh, my subject is the moon, and I was one of the NASA moon mappers. I got involved in that. So um, uh, wearing my astronomer's hat, I'm definitely um, uh, a lunar observer. And I've discovered various things there, but I'm not, I'm not a, a star hunter or a comet hunter. I remember that I've confirmed things. I remember when George Alcock discovered a, a, bright, a, a nova. He rang me up at 3 o'clock in the morning. He said, confirm it quickly before the sun rises. And I dashed out and managed to do so, and I was able to confirm that. But um, no credit to me. He told me exactly what it was. <laughs> You're very well respected in the astronomical world and so on. What are your, in your opinion, what are your greatest achievements, the things you're most proud of? The only real research I've done in an astronomical career, really, is a, um, two things. First of all, in mapping the moon. And, of course, all the work I did in the 1940s, 50s and 60s is now totally obsolete. I mean, it would be, but it had to be done another time. So I did, I did help to produce some of the maps, I think. And when the Russians sent their first unmanned probe round the moon in 1959, the maps of the moon's edge they used to tie up their pace bits with the ones that I'd done with the telescope you saw outside. And uh, since I'm still an observer of the planets, but um, and, uh, nowadays... I think my main research lies in the past, and if I've got a role now, it's in trying to interest other people to do more than I can. And I do come because it does give me a great kick to go around and find well-known amateurs and well-known professionals who I began by either coming to see me or reading a book of mine or watching the sky at night or something. Would you say we've only really scratched the surface of astronomical work so far? Haven't even done that, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say you're a frustrated astronaut? No, it would need a very massive rocket to launch me. I knew from the world go that I hadn't the chance. For one thing, I haven't got the medical grade, and mm -hmm. second, I have the qualifications. Of course, I'm far too old. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, mean, I knew when I was, um, I was saying after the war that men would get to the moon and we'd go, go into space. I got the first man in space, uh, the first space satellite, and the first man in space fairly right. 
I was saying around about 19, uh, 1960, which of course it was. The moon I got wrong, I was saying until fairly recently, well, fairly before in the 60s, that men would get to the moon around about 1980, and it was, of course, 1969. Arthur Clarke got it right, I didn't. I was a bit t over 10 years too pessimistic. When those great moments happened, do they make you emotional? Well, when the first men landed on the moon, I was actually on the air doing a live broadcast. Of course, I knew both the astronauts. So I, as I was doing the comments, so I had to be very careful what I said. I remember that very well. There's a picture of Neil Armstrong up there. But nonetheless, were you quite moved by it? Or? I was bound to be. Mm. Um, but uh, my first instinct when I heard Neil's voice coming through, the eagle has landed, one of overwhelming relief, because no one had done this before, and although we are fairly certain the moon's surface was absolutely safe to land on, solid enough, you couldn't be 100% sure, and if they made a faulty landing, there was no way back. So when I heard his voice coming through, they'd landed safely. That was a great moment. I was very, very relieved. I think everybody was. Mm. What are the next great steps in sort of space travel and so on to, that we can look forward to? Well, manned space travel, of course, it depends very much more on politics and finance and upon sheer science. Uh, we could have a lunar base within 10, 10 15 years if we wanted to. Whether we will, I don't know. But it would tremendous value if we did, of course. I mean, there are still some people who are stupid enough to say, why waste money on space? Because they don't realize tremendous spin-offs. And Anyway, a space probe costs less than a nuclear submarine. Uh, we could have a lunar base. Uh, I'm not sure when we will. The next major thing after that, of course, we're going to have a major space station, I think. And the next really epoch-making thing is we'll be the first man on Mars. And when I was at the International Astronomical Union meeting last year, we were talking about 2020, but I don't think, from a political point of view, it will be as early as that. In other words, I don't think I will see it. You might. Your children may, and your grandchildren probably will. Now, people often talk about civilization on the moon one day, that sort of thing. Do you think that will ever happen, that people will live on the moon? I'm sure they will, but the moon, remember, has got no atmosphere. It's a very hostile world from that point of view. And life there is going to be very artificial always. So you can never do more than have extensive scientific colonies there. When you, you can't have, um, turn the moon into a kind of second Earth. You can't even do that with Mars. I'm prepared to believe that, in, that by this time next century, there may be a few thousand people living on the moon, even a few million upon Mars, but you'll never turn it into a second Earth. If you could achieve anything, just one thing, in, in space travel and so on, what would you do? What would you want to do? I think the only thing that I can do now, really, is to encourage other people to do what I can't. And that's what I try and do, but I'll go on trying to do as long as I can. What about all these sort of silly stories we hear about, and all the Martians and things like that? Do, do they bother you? Do you find them quite amusing, or, or is there some credibility in there somewhere, do you think? Oh, no, it's great fun. I mean, there's some science fiction, there's science fact. But some, you never know. I mean, I remember the sad story of Mr. Truman Bithyrum, an American who some years ago wrote a book called Aboard a Flying Saucer, describing adventures aboard a flying saucer from Venus, piloted by a beautiful lady named Mrs. Aura Rains. And this came out and sold very well. A very well-written book. I've got it somewhere. And um, a non-fiction, an account of a true experience. Very convincing. Unfortunately, his wife did not appreciate it. She sued her husband for divorce, cited the lady from Venus, and she won. <laughs> did you think you'd make a career out of astronomy, or is it quite an unusual thing to do, presumably? I didn't quite know. Um, I had no idea, really. They think I always wanted to be. And it's what I am, really. It was a writer. I mean, I am an astronomer, but I'm also a writer. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was a boy, I always knew whatever happened I was going to write. But if I'd gone to university in the ordinary way, I would, I would finish up by writing, I'm quite sure. I mean, see, uh, my, my degrees are honorary ones, because um, after the war, I wanted to go to university, obviously, but it would have meant then taking a government grant, and that's not in my line. Either I do a thing myself or I don't do it. I throw the cable, I'll do a bit of writing, etc., and I'll pay my way to university. I wrote a book that caught on, I never had time to do it. <laughs> they really kind of gave me an honorary degree, but it is honorary. <laughs> Now, most of the stuff you've written is about astronomy, or have you written about other subjects as well? I wrote some boys' novels once, done some geology, and, of course, I wrote two books, and I never R.T. Fishall, uh, one called Bureaucrats, How to Annoy Them, and the other called The Twitmarsh File. I mean, working on the third one, we called The Hum and the Bug. <laughs> is this your hobby rather than astronomy? You, you have a bit of fun writing novels like that? It was just fun. I haven't done it for some time. I haven't had mm. time. 
Do you enjoy sort of oh, yes. being being a bit of a, a pest to these pompous people? Oh, most certainly, yes. It began when I had a, a, um, a final demand from the local gas company signed by Mr Whitmarsh, uh, threatening me with immediate legal action for non-payment of a £10 repair bill to my central heating, which is powered entirely by oil, you understand, so the quick was fraught with interest from the word go. I then had a from the North Thames Gas Board, threatening me with immediate action for non-payment of uh, £2,000 for installation of gas central heating at number 24 Lowne Street, SW1. I don't know where it is to start with, and I had great fun with that one too. Apparently, they, somebody did that, someone named Moore did own that money, looked up a who's who and found me and sent it to me. I had great fun with that. I, I'm going to give you a book of the Flipmarsh file. Mr. Whitmarsh wasn't a bit pleased about it, because I didn't Twitmarsh. Have you always done your writing on this great Woodstock typewriter? Ever since I was eight years old, yes. I was given that typewriter when I was eight. I think it cost a pound, and everything is done on it. <laughs> but I've been lost about that dear old typewriter. Word processors you can keep. It broke down once, didn't it, and you had to be sent some other ones or something? But lucky, it was um, a youngster who was rather ill. He had given a bit of a hand. He came down to do a bit of a broadcast, said, my old Woodstock was in trouble. Suddenly, it rained Woodstocks, old, decrepit machines, and the parts fitted. And one other machine is so like mine, I can't tell the difference. Are you one of these people who's never satisfied? You always want to be doing different things. You'll never sit down for two minutes. You're always working. Well, don't forget, um, I've never worked in my life. Since I left the Air Force, I've never worked. But what I laughingly call my work and my hobby are the same things. So I've never done a day's work. Neither will I. I don't want to like that. I never worked. But you're always doing something. You'll oh, never yes. do nothing, will you? I don't think so, no. My relaxer is going to play the piano, of course. <laughs> now, how did the BBC get hold of you? Paul Johnstone, the television producer, who's now dead, very sadly, he was an astronomer. He was a scientist in and about he was an archaeologist. Um, they were looking for someone to do a regular programme on astronomy that hadn't been done before, and he'd heard me giving a lecture somewhere, read one of my books, I think, thought, well, I wonder, it might be the chap to have a go. So they rang me up. So we'd like to have a go. And I said, what a good idea. So I went to see him, and we worked out a programme, and it ran from there. So you weren't exactly a reluctant star. You were... a bit. I was all for it. <laughs> was that vanity or what? Or you just quite fancied a challenge, something different? It sounded interesting, and I thought I might be able to do a bit in popularising it, which is what I really try and do. So um, I think the Sky Night's done some good over the years. I hope so, anyway. Why do you think you would be able to help popularise it? What was it about you which you thought you could do that? Nothing, whatever. Anybody who was doing that particular programme could have done it. It just happened that they, they, they chose me to have a girl, and it was just the right moment, and I'd have stayed there. But um, it's nothing whatever to do with me. I mean, anyone who went there at that, that time would have been doing what I'm doing now. Simple as that. I think there's a bit of modesty. Not a bit, but it's true. But you're considered a great character as well. Do you consider yourself to be a great character? Nothing eccentric about me. I mean, apart from, apart from having two heads, of course. <laughs> <laughs> do you mind the, the label, etc.? Do you seriously mind that? Not being quite, why should I? Do you think I must say, a little while ago, I'm... Um, Lenny and Jerry were doing a television comedy show, and Lenny said to Jerry, um, a couple of East End comedians not doing too badly. Let's go and see how they're getting on. That was me and Magnus Pike. We were, we were the hit parade of 1887. <laughs> Magnus is dead now, so... <laughs> Do you, would you say that you're quite old-fashioned? In some ways, I suppose I am, yes. I'm, I think I'm a bit of a throwback in some ways. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the music I write belongs not to 1993, but to 1883, and I know it perfectly well. <laughs> Do you think perhaps you're living in the past a bit too much? I don't think so, no. I'm living in the future, but I mean, I can look back and look forward. Do you think you owe a lot of your character to the fact that you lived on your own, you know, you've never been married? No, I would have been married. I mean, there's, mm. there, look, there's no secret about that. No. I would have been married, but my girl was killed in the war. Mm. And uh, that's, as far as I'm concerned, was that. I mean, so, mm. one-off. So, um, mm. that's why I very said, I regret it tremendously. I mean, I'd love to wife and family, but mm. it just didn't work out that way, and one has to accept it. Do you still miss her? Do you still think about her every day? Of course I do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For there it is. Mm. Do you have many mementos of her? Any yeah. photographs? Yeah. Long time ago now. Mm. Why did you not keep anything? It was a rather difficult time then to get. Mm. <laughs> it was during the war. Long time back now. Mm. So my, the, uh, the only other permanent resident of Fothings now is a small black and white cat named Bonnie, whom you've mm. already seen. 
So there's never been any other romance at all in your no. life? Once, once the one off for me. Have there lots of people been clamouring to your door, though, because of your fame and fortune? <laughs> no, see, there's one small black and white cat where I have a plumber in the house. Lots of people come around, of course. I'd have thought you'd been quite an eligible bachelor. Good heavens, no. <laughs> you lived with your mother for quite a long time. I did, by very close to her, yes. She, she died in 1981 at the age of 94. She was a mentally fine right to the end. I remember once, for example, I came home from London. She was 87, I think, then. And I came home. She said, well, it's been rather dull today. Let's have a party. I said, what a good idea. She said, right, now you go and order the drinks. I get on the phone. That was at 6.30. By half past eight, there were 40 people in place. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you only live with your mother whilst you were living in this house? No, I always have done. No, yeah. she's always been with me. Right. So can you just talk us through the different places you've lived in? Only three, really. Um, yeah. I, remember, I remember nothing about Pinner. I, mean, I was there six months when I left. I've seen the house once, things, but um, I don't remember anything about it at all. Is it still standing? It's still standing, but um, I, I've only seen it once. And then we then went to Aldrich outside Bognor and a house called Our Mascot. And I was in that not the other day, but one of the papers did a series about people's original houses. Well, I go there and be photographed in it. So we contacted the present owner and I went over. Um, Our Mascot in, in Bognor. I like that house. We lived there until I was, um, uh, until I was six. And we had as a, my grandmother had as a holiday house right up to the wall, so I knew it very well. I went from there to East Grinstead. There, of course, there we lived for 36 years. And where they were, obviously, I know they were indeed. And that house is still standing. And uh, the only other place I lived in was in St. Mark's Place in Armagh, when I was the director of the penitentiary. The old judge's house there in the, in the world. It was a lovely old house. Not quite my house, I mean, it's a very nice Regency house, you know, big place. But um, I didn't like Ireland anyway, so I didn't intend to stay there. I, I set out to do what I, what, I, what I said I'd do, and I did it. So why this place? How did you come to find this place? I'd always known Celsi, and always liked Celsi, and I knew people here. So when I was resigned as director of the planetarium, having done what I set out to do, I thought, well, where am I going to live? And mother didn't mind. But, well, um, I want to go and live in Celsi. So I came down here, stayed with an old friend of mine, Henry Brinton, who's now dead, very sadly, and I went house hunting. And I looked round, and, and there was a house for sale at the end of West Street called Little Gardens. And I went down to have a look at this. And it's a nice house, but it wasn't quite suitable for me. And on the way back, we passed Farthings, which hadn't been lived in for four years, and with a little for sale near to something. I said, well, I'd like to look at that one. I went and saw the only agent and got a key and fought through the rusted door. And as soon as I came in, I said, this is where I want to live. Mm. So that's I, and uh, so um, when I came to when I came to live here, I'd seen it twice, and my mother not at all. <laughs> what did you think it was about Farthings that? Uh, made I don't know. I just liked everything about it, and I still do. Uh, when you want to live in a place, it can sometimes be a great disappointment. But having lived here now for twenty-five years, I wouldn't leave it for anything. I love this old house. Wouldn't leave it. Do you get quite lonely here, living on your own now? I've got a lot of friends around. I mean, there I've, I've got plenty of friends around. I see a lot of people. Mm. I don't like living alone. I miss mean, the way things are worked out. It makes me now, you're famed for only having one meal a day. Is that still the case? In the general way, yes. I'm, I'm, in spite of my size and bark, I've got a small appetite. Um, I've got a bit of a um, thigh that doesn't work properly. Operation a little while ago, it's perfectly right. But, um, uh, no, I'm, I have not, I'm, I'm not a big eater by, by, by any means. I never was. I mean, if, I, if I'm going to have dinner on my own, I normally have a little discussion with myself. Now, how shall I have dinner tonight? Shall I poach it, boil it, scramble it, or fry it? <laughs> I'd have thought you'd be quite a connoisseur as far as food and uh, drink is concerned. I'm not really. I mean, I, I can cook if I have to. I've got people coming. To, I've got old friends coming to see me on Sunday, and I'll do. And I'll make make lunch for them here. I can do it all right. But when you're on your own, you just don't bother, frankly. But this place is quite a uh, sort of a mecca for enthusiasts of astronomy, it is, yes. isn't it? Certainly. Yeah. Always glad to see people. Mm. They always put people out because got plenty of room. <laughs> do you get a lot of people just strolling by, just knocking on your door who you've never met before? Oh, it happens quite often. I don't mind a bit. They want to see, they want to see through to I'm quite happy to show them. And you look after children's parties, that's something that come here as well? Oh, yes. We had, we had 14, 15 cubs last night from a local prep school. What do you do when you come out? Do you go out and get loads of chocolate biscuits and ginger beer and things like that? 
they've drank a lot, they've had, they've had a lot of chocolate biscuits and drank a lot of coke and orange jade last night. <laughs> but I think I, I think I'm actually depleted. I must I must lay some more in. <laughs> Do you never worry about, you know, strangers coming up on your doorstep? Does it never bother you? Oh, you're selective, obviously. Mm. You've got to be selective these days. I mean, uh, there was a time I didn't even bother, bother to lock my garage. Now, of course, unfortunately, you've got to. I mean, things, oh. law and order's broken down, you've got to. Mm. You as long as you're selective, it's all right. Mm. Would you say that you've noticed a decline in standards over the years? Oh, Lord, yes. Very much so. I see, I didn't even bother to lock my garage when I came here. Mm. I said I wouldn't, wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of having a burglar alarm. Now, of course, I do. We have one burglar here. But, um... Police, frankly, aren't much use. They're only, they're only interested in chasing motorists. They're not, they, are, they, aren't, they aren't much use around here. Mm. And therefore, you've got to take precautions now, unfortunately. I remember reading that uh, the one thing you don't like in people is rudeness. Do, would you say that's increased over the years, or would you say people are...? Well, I think it has, quite definitely. I'm sure it has, yes. When, when you're right to the top, I mean, occasionally I listen to the broadcast in the House of Commons. Well, really. <laughs> when you have the children coming here, for instance, do, do you notice that they're not quite as well behaved as they used to be or some are I mean that lot last night they came from the Oakfield House prep school and they they, they know how to behave mm. <laughs> what they like well between about nine and uh, nine, eight, six and, eight and eleven they know how to behave of course they do some that don't you have to watch it but you're held in great affection I mean if, if you wouldn't say all over the world certainly in Britain people are very no fond of you I have no idea <laughs> how can I judge I can't <laughs> but why do you think people people hold you to such because you've been around for so long I suppose, really, when it comes to television, I'm part of the furniture. As I say, after all, there wasn't a great deal of television 36 years ago, and I've been on it ever since, so people are fairly used to my popping up here and there, and that's what it is, I think. Yeah. And somebody did come up a little while ago and say, yes, I think you're wonderful on television. Uh, do let me have your autograph. Um, you are Cyril Smith, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> we know, as I said before, we're well-known all over the world and things. Doesn't that make you feel good, or...? It never really occurs to me. It's, 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 it been a, it's gradually crept up on me, simply because it's the only reason I'm known at all is because I put me here on television. In the astronomical world, OK, I'm, I'm known as, as one of the moon mappers, but I'm only a, a very small cog and extremely large chain. Are you quite keen on the, uh, the fame aspect? Do you like having your picture taken and signing autographs and things like that? I don't in the least mind. I mean, after, after it's, it's part of life, and it just doesn't worry me a bit either way. Well, it's bound to be so, I think. I simply mean, as I haven't been putting my head on television for so long, I people are bound to recognise you. And if kids come up with autographs, I always carry a stack of cards and things like that. I, I, can, I can oblige suitably. <laughs> now, you're obviously uh, playing, as you say, quite a bit of sport. Are you, are you just into cricket at the moment, or are you doing other things? I'm in trouble with cricket, frankly. I say, I go, I, I'm like everybody else. I got, I, got, I got knocked around during the war. I got my shoulder smashed up, my, my knee smashed up. And, and you can get away, it's, it's given me a periodic nuisance ever since, but now that I'm 70, it's a, the shoulder particularly is a confounding nuisance, when the muscle's gone a bit to the back. And if I were a batsman, it wouldn't matter so much. And unfortunately, I'm not only a bowler, I'm a spinner, but I've got a long leaping run and a kangaroo hop run and, and a cartwheel action. And it's the, the very worst kind of action for that kind of injury. So anyway, for now, for the village, I, for a long time now, I've, I've only played when there would be no youngster waiting to play. I will not keep a youngster out of the team. I will make up a team, if, um, if a people out there, I will go and score. Mm. I sit there and I score. That's what I, mean. That's what I do most of the time now. Mm. I, I won't keep you on the team. Also, don't forget, um, unless I'm burning, I'm a passenger. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm no batsman. I'm also, always have been, a very, very poor field. So really, I'm, I'm, I'm no good as a player unless, I, uh, unless I'm bowling. Do the rest of the team always make a fuss of you because of who you are? Good heavens, no. <laughs> good heavens, no. And I'm secretary, anyway. <laughs> what about the opposition when you do play? Oh, yes, I, I know them all pretty well, I think. Mm. Let's say in all days, I'll go, I'll go around. Um, normally, I, I do more scoring than playing now for, for, for those two reasons. First of all, my wretched children. Secondly, I see the fact that I'm sent mm. I'm sure you've got a few good cricket anecdotes in your time. You must have had a oh, few yes. great incidents. Oh, tell, yes. tell us one or two things that have happened to you on the cricket field. I remember once stopping a cricket match. 
was an orderly just after the war, when they were getting going again, it was, you know, they were occupied during the war, little ground there right on top of the on cliff there. And I went over to play and I was asked to captain the visitors against the islanders. Fine, I do so. I think John Orlock was umpiring. And um, we batted first. And of course, I always bat number 11. I mean, I have no batsman at all. And I've only got one scoring shot. That's a cow shot to leg. And the first ball was a very slow long hop outside the leg stump. And I played my only cow, my shot. And I, I managed to connect. Went over square leg's head into the sea for six. The second ball was a very slow long hop outside the off stump. And I played the same shot. It went over square leg's head into the sea for six. That was the end of the match. There were no more balls. <laughs> <laughs> this is still remembered in Alderney. <laughs> Ah, lovely. And what about your worst performance on the cricket field? Have you ever done anything totally disastrous? Uh, yes. Um, I won't give you the name. There was a very famous test cricketer, and uh, I was playing in his benefit match. And I was on the opposite side, and he came into bat, and I had him absolutely plumb LBW first ball. I said, I didn't appeal. The umpire said, I didn't hear you. <laughs> I nearly appealed. I had him out first ball. Oh. I'm glad to say that I realised what, what I was about to do, and I stopped. That was very nearly a black. Well, we went down a little while ago to, um, down to a Dalton House school in um, Sevenoaks to play against the blind boys. But they do it with sounds, you know, and that day Derek Underwood and I were the bowlers that day. And we didn't know the rules. <laughs> but uh, it was great fun. I say one of the blind boys came up to me and said, I'm interested in astronomy, but there's no book for me. And one of the London School for the Blind was there and said, what would you charge to write a book on astronomy for the blind boys? I wouldn't dream of charging it, but of course I'll do it. And so they put it out in Braille. I've also put it on the tape. How lovely. When you talk, you, you speak very fast. Why is that, do you think? Not on the air. When I'm being overseas, I speak very slowly. I've got what I call my, my overseas speed. Now, you're very popular on quiz shows and game shows on the television and so on. Do you not think they undermine the other work that you do? Not a bit. Uh, the point is, yeah, OK, I'm an astronomer. When I'm being an astronomer, I'm, I'm being very serious about it. But um, I think that people very often can't laugh at themselves, and I can't be accused of that. And why ever not? When I'm an astronomer, I'm an astronomer. What have been your great moments in game shows? I think the time when I was on Face to Music, there were two episodes there. Once when they had, a, uh, they had to identify a piece of music connected with royalty and then identify a picture. Where well, I got the music straight away, it was Elgar Street. And they had a picture, and again, this picture of the Queen right in the background. I hadn't got my glass, I hadn't got my monocle, I didn't recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> oh and another came on the quiz show, um, you had to identify tunes. And I was absolutely caught out. They suddenly came a Viennese waltz, I had to identify this Viennese waltz. And I missed it, and I'd written it myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, you write a heck of a lot of music. When do you have time to do all this? That's my great resignation, my, my, great, my great relaxation. Mm. But see, don't forget, I've, I'm a complete fake. I've never had a music lesson in my life, and my ignorance of theoretical music is absolutely complete. I know nothing about it at all. But when you speak to established musicians, do they rate your performances, or...? Apparently, it's technically right. You see the point? I've got no ability, but I've, I've got one thing that's absolutely no credit to me. Don't get me wrong at all. It's no credit to me whatsoever. But that weird thing called perfect pitch and perfect time, I have got. And therefore, if you hum me a tune, I will sit down and play it. And if I, if I, if I harmonise and change key at my keys, I, mean, I instinctively get it right. I don't know how. In the same way, I, mean, I'm, I can see your microphone quite clearly. If I live to be 100, I couldn't draw it in perspective. Mm. I'm the slightest idea. But perfect pitch and perfect time, through no minute to me, I've got. What do you think of uh, pop music and rock music and so on? Or are you just a stickler for I don't personally like it at all. Well, on the other hand, I must have um, I think it was last Christmas, um, had a frantic call from one of, the, one of the youth clubs somewhere away from here, had their big Christmas hop, and they had um, um, a, rock, a pop band coming down, no drummer. I was playing, I was playing the drum in a pop group with three of them. I do perfectly well, of course. <laughs> well, Magnus Pike did a pop record, of course. Yes. Would you say you find it difficult to adjust to, to modern times sometimes when it comes to things like pop music? 
Not pop music particularly, because I'm not, I'm not a heavy classicist either. You see, I, I'm, what I call, I'm what I call a tunesmith. Right? So, so music, I don't find a bit difficult to adjust. I don't like pop music. I don't like rock music, but I mean, I don't like Bach either. <laughs> so. You're very much impersonated, people do impressions of you and things. Does that um, flatter you or bother I you? Came, I complained bitterly once. I was... Um, when I put it, I've got a scar over my eyes, you can see, mm. and he got it wrong. And I was playing this was scar was got during my, in my uh, RAF days, and we were coming back from a raid in Berlin. We were shot, we were nearly shot down over the Skagway, and we had night fighters warring, and we were in the sea of fact, we were in the jaws of death, that's where I got the scar. Actually, I came off my motorbike in 1952, it's a nice story. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> he got it wrong, he put it right. <laughs> my wheel caught in a rut. But do you mind people doing impressions of you and things? Not a bit. I mean, well, during the, during the Apollo programmes, I'm... Uh, somebody rang me up and said, uh, last night on BBC Two Late Night Lineup was the most wicked and unkind impersonation of you. Someone looking a bit like you, dressed in a fishbowl helmet, saying they were come down from Mars and they, to prove there couldn't be any life here because there's too much water. I said, but do you, but you know who it was? I said, I can't imagine who it was. <laughs> I thought I'd disguise myself just sufficiently. <laughs> But you're famous for your outside suits and your jackets and things. Have you got a whole wardrobe full of them, or do you ever wear lots of other things as well? No, I'm never really. Um, the trouble is, yeah, I can't get any ready-made clothes at all. And, uh, somebody once said that I gave every impression of having been somewhat hastily constructed, which is a perfectly fair comment. Look at the length of my arms, for example. <laughs> so I have everything there. I've got a very good tailor. He does me awfully well. Mm. Now, you've still got your, your bicycle, haven't you? Tell us the story of your bikes. Well, I had a, a bike when I was a boy, and I still have it. The other, the other bike I was did is a new one. Now, you've also got a, a couple of cars. Well, you've got your old Ford Prefect. Not in action it? at the moment. It was stolen and I've got it back. I'm grateful that I'm going to put it back in running order. Uh, I can't do it myself. I'm not a mechanic. There's nothing basically wrong with it. It's a lovely old car. And the other one I got years ago, I got a dual Triumph 2000. And I still have it. And why should I change it? It's comfortable. It's as fast as I want it to be. It's automatic. It's got room for my long legs. And half the cars I can't drive. I can't stretch my legs up. And this dear old car does me very well. Say it's as fast as you want it to be. How fast does it go? Uh, down a motorway, my cruising speed, about 63, I suppose, something like that. I'm just, just, just over 60 down a motorway. But the prefect still works, does it? Yeah, well, it doesn't at the moment, but it, it, it will in a couple of months. Right. Yeah. That one I read that uh, a dog once overtook you. Tell me that story. I was going up Duncan Hill at top speed, and, um, and my dear old prefect, and suddenly a terrier scuttled past me. <laughs> I looked at it in a rather offended way. <laughs> Does that sort of thing happen to you quite often, funny little Frequently. <laughs> what about films on space travel and TV series and things like Star Trek and so on? Are you a keen follower of those, or do you not like them? I think they're rather fun. Um, Doctor Who was great fun, I think, at the best of time. But, and um, you know, and they're, they're, they're not meant to be taken seriously. One or two, of course, have, in Destination Moon, years ago, that was, that was a, a look into the future, and it was a pretty good. I mean, I designed the Lunar Crater War, I remember, in 1950. And, of course, um, 2001 was an interesting film. Well, they cut the end off. <laughs> have you thought of writing one yourself? Have you ever tried to? I've often been asked to, and one of these days I will, but the trouble, of course, is time, quite honestly. Mm. I've got so much on the present moment, I can't sort of arrange for it. I'll have a go one day. Well, I, whether I can, I don't know, but mm. I'll have a go one day, I think. Presumably, over the years, a lot of people have mistakenly described you as an astrologer. Does that, that offend that, you? That, is, that really is really annoying. I mean, after all, the astrologers, they, they, they are a perfect nuisance with everybody, quite frankly. That, that's the one that really does make me cross, yes. Why do you describe them as a nuisance? Because people confuse them with real astrology. They bring the entire thing into, 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 into disrepute. Do you think it's, it's, uh, it's a joke? or I mean, is no, there any serious? Um, astrology is all right if you can find it at the circus tents and the end of seaside piers. But these people take themselves so seriously and they set themselves up as bona fide scientists, which, of course, they are not. And that, that can bring the entire thing into disrepute. So you're not one for reading your horoscope every day, then? 
I read my horoscope in the paper a little while ago, and it said that that day I was due to have an outstanding athletic feat. On a spinner's wicket, I took north for 62. <laughs> Not a great athlete. Are you a believer in the other side of things and things like that that, that astrologists go into? No. You don't believe in anything like ghosts and life after death and all that sort of thing? You're going there into religion. And there are three things which I never discuss in public. Politics, football and religion. So I always stick to that. Right. <laughs> you don't like football anyway, I don't think. I'm not, I'm not anti-football. I, right. I, I, know, I know nothing about it. Mm. I never played a game of football in my life. I'd be, I, because I'm as slow as a house, I'd be quite useless. Quite apart from slightly lame, though. <laughs> now, what you are very anti is fox hunting, of course. But why? Yeah, what started that passion against that? I suppose I've always been living in the, in the country, and I, I just like needless cruelty, and this is it. And I see no, I see no murmuration of people who kill for fun. It's sheer nastiness. I mean, okay, shooting, you, you try and kill cleanly. I couldn't do it myself. I mean, um, if I shot at a rabbit, the one thing would be perf perfectly safe would be the rabbit. That's not, not actually the point. But needless cruelty and love, I, I can't stand at all. So I think we'll, I think we'll, we'll, get, we'll get rid of the fox hunt and stag hunters before long. To what extent do you vent your passions? Do you write to Buckingham Palace or anything like that? Well, I belong to a league against cruel sports. Right. And I'm all for it. I think, well, I think they were, there's a bill going through Parliament now. I think we'll, we'll get it through, I think. Well, I imagine you've probably met royalty. Have you managed to voice your opinions to them? I say I, I, I always try to avoid being controversial with people I meet. Where, wherever I am, what's the point? What about people you've met over the years? Have you, is there anyone you wish you'd met that you haven't met or that you have met that you are really glad you did meet? Oh, Einstein, I think. I met Einstein. And um, I was glad to have met him. Very funny, it was when um, I was trained learning how to fly. I was in the county, went out to a medical leave, a little science conference there, and I was invited to it. And uh, Einstein was there. A little reception afterwards, and I was invited to that too. Einstein had his violin. Of course, he was an expert violinist, as you know. And someone said, well, play us your violin. He said, well, I play you the swan. There's no accompanist. There was a piano there, and I knew it. So I've accompanied Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a tape, but the ones who did tapes in those days, he was, a, he was a great character. Was he your hero, your idol? Um... I don't know, really. I mean, um, after all, he was the, the greatest mathematician since Newton, so I'm very glad to have met him. I only met him that once, I may say. I also met Orville Wright, first airman, who didn't die from 1948. I met him once, too. So I go, I'll go back. Were these guys, did they live up to your expectations, or were they... Oh, yes, quite definitely. I'm sure they I, I, I only met those two once each, I mean, you can't tell, but mm. certainly they were what I expected them to be. Mm. What sort of a guy was Einstein, from what you could remember in that short period? Uh, totally unworldly, uh, completely unworldly. Absent-minded, never worn his socks, I may say. He hated socks, but a uh, very pleasant, charming chap. Mm. Is there anyone you never met that you always wish you'd met? I'd like to meet Rachmaninoff, the pianist. I have heard him, I may say. I heard him his last school. I heard I'd like to meet Rachmaninoff, but I didn't. Is there anyone else you perhaps would like to have been, if if not yourself? Never thought about it. <laughs> I am myself. <laughs> what about some great cricketer or anything? I mean, or is is cricket not the greatest ambition? Is it more astronomy? I mean, they're all hobbies for me. I mean, after I am an astronomer, I enjoy playing cricket. But I, I, I say I made no pretense of being good. I could never have played serious cricket, even if I wanted to, which I didn't. Mm -hmm. But even if I wanted to, I couldn't have done. You can carry a number 11 bat, but uh, you can't carry a field as bad as I am in serious cricket. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I'm purely a bowler. Are you glad you've dabbled so much in different areas rather than concentrating particularly on one? Yes, I am. I thought for you, if you're, if you're single-minded, I think you'd be, you can tend to have rather narrow. I hope I'm not that. I don't know. Mm. When you have um, injuries and whatever that you have experienced over the years, does that frustrate you a great deal that you can't fulfil everything you want to do? 
Yes, his wretched shoulder injury upset, upset, upsets me now badly, because I mean, I'm, I think it's going to wreck my cricket completely, I think, because I'd rather not bowl at all than bowl really badly, which I would at the moment. Mm. You've had a lot of trouble with your eyes. Can, you, can we just go through? Well, that was, that, that, well, that was a cricket injury last, last season, oh. the first one I ever had, and mm. I fielded the ball with my eye. I was in the slips, and mm. it means I'm going to have a rather nasty operation on it. Mm. They've got a solar lens into my eye. It's not a lot of use at the moment. It's a nuisance, frankly. I can't mm. be done without that. So they'll put the other operator on it, and I hope put it right. So you're now having to focus with the other eye, looking through your I had to train my left eye, and I thought this was going to be, thought was going to be very difficult. In point of fact, I found it less difficult than I, than I feared it might be. So I'm quite ready to be able to do that. Hmm. Now, how often are you out in your garden of an evening looking through your telescopes? Well, of course, you'll turn entirely upon clouds and what's up. And hmm. if it's clear tonight, I'll be having a go at Jupiter, yes. Well, if it's a really cloudy night, you just stay indoors and watch telly instead, do you? We've got plenty to do. <laughs> what, are, what are your plans for the future? Any, any particular... Um... Simply go on as I am as long as I can. I, I try and interest people in this kind of thing. And that's it's my role, I think, if I got one. If I do that, I'm happy. So I should simply carry on as I can, for as long as I can, as long as people want me to. Do you have any regrets? Yes, not being married, obviously. <laughs> Otherwise, I think no. How would you like to be remembered? Someone who tried. <laughs> do you foresee yourself living here for the rest of your years? Oh, yes, I would never leave this old house. I love it. Mm. I would never leave this if I, this I had to. No way. If there's any advice you could pass on to youngsters today, what, what would it be? I remember the advice I was given when I was a boy. My mother, I think, said, if you want to do something, ask yourself two questions. A, is it sensible? And B, does it cause hurt or inconvenience to anybody else? If the answers are yes and no, do it. And if they aren't, don't. <laughs>